this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I'm going to be discussing red-green in Lord of the Rings Limited. Uh, as always, the notes are available to follow along at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes, and getting into it. So red-green is the least drafted archetype by a lot, by users as a whole on 17 lands. Presumably that translates into uh, users in general. It's like barely over half is drafted as the second least drafted archetype, which is like a very small percent of the you know amount that the most drafted archetypes are drafted. Looking for examples of trophy decks on uh, 17 lands uh, recent trophy decks list, there were some, but they were few and far between. There were so many decks of uh, other color combinations between every uh, trophy with red-green. So, least drafted by a lot. It doesn't have the worst win rate. It wins more than uh, blue-white, green-white, and blue-green. So, wins more than every Bant combination. But doesn't come up a lot. So, an example of how rarely this deck is drafted... I personally have never drafted it. That said, I do think I have some idea of like what it wants to do and how to draft it and how it plays. I know like broadly what's going on in the format pretty well, but there are not a lot of incentives to draft straight red green and it's just never come up for me. I prioritize other colors. I don't like red green in most formats and given that it's like particularly unsupported and unpopular in this format, it's not terribly surprising that I never find myself there. This has actually come up for uh, several recent sets. The big exception to like red-green not being very good or popular is uh, Phyrexia All will be one, where like oil theoretically gave red-green some synergies, but mostly it was just that the red and green cards were both really good. I feel like design, like Wizards design team hasn't really figured out how to make red green good and interesting in limited. Their solution to like what does red green do as an archetype is usually like play some big creatures, maybe try to ramp and cast them a little bit earlier, but like they don't do that at a competitive rate and not like in an interesting way and not in a way where there's any particular reason to to pair whatever red or green is bringing to that with the other color instead of like something else. So it would be nice to see like a general design shift in philosophy in terms of like what the bar needs to be to like make red green an acceptable like limited archetype, but we don't seem to have gotten there yet. Red-green in this set is definitely uh, in the space that I've been referring to as big proactive. So you're not a control. Like, again, this is what I think a lot of people end up calling mid-range, but I think mid-range is like kind of nonsense and big proactive to me says a lot more about what the game plan is. Like you are not a control deck. You are trying to get your opponent dead, but you care more about like outclassing their stuff than like outracing their stuff. And this informs card choice in a meaningful way. Uh, for example, Rohirrim Lancer, the one mana, one, one menace that tempts when it dies is like a reasonably solid card in the format. Broadly, a reasonably good aggressive card, 
but very clearly very off plan for big proactive. It is not a big card. And when you're big proactive, you're really not like the opposite of what you're trying to do is nickel and dime your opponent. And so like spending a card to push a little bit of damage the way that Lancer does isn't meaningfully contributing to your overwhelm your opponent uh, game plan. And so we see that card have like poor stats in this archetype where it plays pretty well in other red archetypes because uh, it doesn't contribute to this strategy. So red green wants to prioritize four power creatures, maybe with a bit of ramp and or cheap removal to get to the point where like you have time to play your big creatures and they have time to take over the game. You can uh, play some fixing, maybe even inherited envelope. There's like a package of the creatures that you want uh, do tempt things. You don't really need a tempt the way that like the small ball decks do in that, you know, the extra damage and the evasion aren't really helping you a lot, but card selection is generically pretty good. So um, these decks do end up, you know, tempting and appreciating it. But I would say it's kind of just a nice bonus that's on cards that this deck wants anyway, more than it is like essential the way that it is in say blue, white, or even black, white. So Warbeast of Gargaroth, is maybe the opposite of Rohirrim Lancer, where Rohirrim Lancer is a generally good common that is very poorly set up in red-green. Warbeast of Gargaroth is a maybe overall similar power level red common. Uh, I certainly play it less. It reads to me. It's kind of generically big and clunky, but I know it has decent stats. In red-green in particular, it's like the secret all-star. It's what's going on in this deck in a big way. Uh, Warbeast of Gargaroth has better stats in red-green than Rally at the Hornburg, which is crazy. Uh, Warbeast of Gargaroth is the five mana, five, four, that when a creature with power four or more dies, you amass two. Uh, Rally at the Hornburg is make two humans, your humans have haste. Rally at the Hornburg is in a similar situation to Rohirrim Lancer, where it's a little bit small ball and not really on plan for red-green. Whereas Warbeast is a big guy that makes all of your other big guys better in a way that's like pretty important where you get like paid back if they die, which is kind of what you're worried about having happen to them. Plays really well with uh, Mirror Mirror Guardian, the three mana four two that tempts when it dies. So like if you have a Mirror Mirror Guardian in play, you play a War Beast, your Guardian attacks. If your opponent trades with it, you tempt and you amass two which makes, uh, you know, trading with it pretty bad. So then you, like, push damage. If you get multiple War Beasts in play, things get really problematic for your opponent, where anytime they kill one of your things, you amass four. And, yeah, that, that's that's really bad for them. So War Beast of Gargrath ends up having better stats than Rally, uh, performing only worse than Smite among Red Commons, which is honestly kind of wild to me. I think that like there are a lot of the commons that are red and green that I like generally respect. Recently, I've more often found myself like tracking the good green commons and kind of like being tempted to go into green while I'm drafting, where Warbeast of Gargaroth never really stands out to me in a pack. I think if I respected Warbeast more, I'd be a lot more likely to play red green. If you're someone who likes the like red green lifestyle or play pattern, I would say Warbeast of Gargaroth is probably like the 
the key piece you should be keeping an eye out for, um, especially if you're seeing them go late. Amusingly, when you look at the performance of the top commons in red-green, the top performing common is Troll of Khazad Doom, which is just bizarre in a lot of ways, right? Like Troll is not like, so Troll of Khazad Doom is the black 6-5 land cycler, uh, very far from the best black common, and not what I would expect to be the best land cycler in red-green. Very small sample size, of course. Most red-green decks don't play the troll, but as a really high win rate. And also, uh, Eagles of the North have a really high win rate, which is particularly weird given that Generous Ent and Oliphant have relatively poor win rates. It makes sense to me that the land cyclers are good in red-green because I do, you know, as a big proactive deck that wants to play some ramp and plays like slightly longer games, the like big land cycling creatures are very on plan. Having access to more of that like big top end at a low opportunity cost is really nice. What I think is going on here is that these show that splashing in red and green is good and playing these cards corresponds with having uh, bombs of uh, other colors and specifically corresponds with being able to cast those bonds because uh, they fix for your missing color. So like if you've drawn your troll, then you can cast the black bomb that you're splashing or you can cast the troll. And so I, I think my best guess is that the reason that these cards have good stats is that they correlate with being able to like cast cards that are good enough to play off color in a red-green deck. Mostly, I don't like splashing in proactive decks, but in red-green in this format, given that I think that you kind of like ramping anyway, Woe's Pathfinder fits really well. Woe's Pathfinder is the two mana mana creature that taps for mana of any color and can spend seven to pump a creature, and then sometimes inherited envelope, depending on your curve. Those naturally let you splash because you're not really trying to play one drops. Many partings is a good fit, especially because it enables improvised club really well. So splashing is like not very difficult. And the red, white, and green, white gold cards are all really good. The red, green, gold cards are fine. To me, they're like good payoffs for being in red-green, but not a reason to be red-green, which is part of why I never end up in red-green is like the, the gold cards don't put me there. So being able to splash like gold cards that are higher impact is like a significant advantage of red-green. When I was looking at uh, trophy decks on 17 lands that were red-green, I think more of them were splashing white than not. Uh, just because the uh, green, white, and red, white, gold cards are so good, and those cards aren't super highly drafted. So, like, if you're drafting green anyway, you're just, like, pretty likely to end up seeing that stuff, and then it's worth putting in your deck to have some, like, really high-quality cards. And so then Eagles of the North ends up playing well because you're splashing these, like, powerful gold cards, and it lets you do that more easily. So as far as the cards you're generally looking for, uh, the commons that this archetype wants, it's easy to think of it in the following groups. 
So uh, you're looking for removal in the form of Smite the Deathless, the three mana, uh, or the two mana instant, deal three damage to something, exile it. Ents Fury, the uh, fight spell that grows your creature and puts a plus one plus one counter on it if it has four or more power. And Improvised Club, the instant four damage sacrifice something spell. So that that's your like premium common removal. The big creatures you're looking for, War Beast of Gargaroth, I've already talked about. Relentless Rohirrim is the red 4-3 that uh, tempts when it enters. So it has that critical fourth power and uh, tempt. Enraged Horn, the five mana 4-5 trample ETB tempt green creature. Mirror Mirror Guardian, the 4-2 uh, that tempts when it dies in green. And Bag End Porter, the 4-4 four four that gets bigger for your legendary creatures when it attacks. And then uh, Woe's Pathfinder, Many Partings. And again, depending on your curve, maybe Inherited Envelope to enable a splash. Inherited Envelope doesn't have great stats, but I'm still a believer as long as you have like you know a curve that has good 2s and 5s and like not too many 3s and 4s. So if you're particularly heavy on... Like, if you have some of that good two-mana removal, especially Smite the Deathless, and then you're, like, if you if your deck ends up being a little too heavy on Enraged Horns and War Beast of Gargaroth, because those are both good cards in the archetype, you might end up prioritizing them early, but then also picking them up late, because they're not generally cards that are drafted very highly. If Red Green's open, you're probably going to see them late. So then you might end up kind of flooded on five drops, and then you'd be in a space where it makes sense to play Envelope, and then that enables your like good gold card splash anyway. So I'd keep an eye on Envelope, but don't prioritize it, uh, and don't play it when you have the wrong curve for it. Outside of that like premium stuff, um, those cards I listed that I think really kind of you want to build the archetype around, there are other commons that are playable. Rally at the Hornburg is so good that it's, you know, not going to be bad, even if it's not really on plan for your deck. That's the sorcery that makes two one one humans and gives your humans haste. Quarrels end, uh, three mana, make a 1-1, one, one, draw two, discard one. Uh, well, discard one, then draw two, similar situation. Battle Scarred Goblin, the two mana, two, two, red goblin that does damage to uh, creatures that block it. Swarming of Moria, a mass two, make a treasure that can... Uh, you know, help with the spot where you have too many fives again. If you don't want to play envelopes, Swarming of Moria can work instead, arguably better, because it's like contributing to your board presence, which might matter more than tempting. And Herodrim Spearmaster, the uh, two, three reach that can pump your guys. All of those are acceptable filler. Uh, Rohirrim Lancer, again, is notable in that it's usually like solid filler, but I think you really do want to try to avoid it in most red green decks. Some exceptions if you end up super temp heavy, maybe you have some spear masters in particular because those play well together, but for the most part, it's not really where you want to be. Oliphant and Generacent have pretty weak stats on 17 lands. Like they, they have lower win rate than most of the other cards I've mentioned and a negative improvement when drawn. I still largely believe in them. I think that they give your deck uh, some extra oomph at a very low cost. I think that... Uh, I would expect them to make decks better rather than worse, but I think it's really important that when you play them, you cut one land from your deck for every land cycler, and when you're actually playing the games, you cycle them at the first opportunity unless you're basically guaranteed to be able to curve out without cycling them. My best guess is that their stats are bad because 
players don't follow one of those rules and then end up having worse performance as a result. I don't have any data to prove that that's true. It's just my guess because I play them that way and have good experiences with them and have good results overall. And so my best guess about how people could be not having good results with them is by misplaying them. Um, but, you know, like I said, I haven't actually drafted red green. So what do I know? It's like tricky to figure out like when and why you should draft red green. You know, sometimes they talk about like cards that put you there. I know for some people, the like rare doors uh, is a reason to do that. I didn't do a deep dive on doors stats. I've found the card to be hit or miss when I play against it. I don't find it to be like a big draw personally. I'd probably, you know, play it if I saw it when I was red green, but it's not like I open it and think, oh, I should like take this over like a good common. One thing to note about red green, given that it splashes well and that the gold cards are good and that the gold cards that are legendary are good is that this deck can really like naturally pivot into or out of or between other Naya humans decks and Great Hall of the Citadel Legends decks. I think that most of the time that I've been in a seat where it would be reasonable to play red green, I end up like being a Great Hall of the Citadel Legends deck instead. I generally think that like, the Great Hall of the Citadel Legends deck is like better than like a, a typical has Great Hall is Great Hall of the Citadel Legends as an archetype deck is better than a typical like red green as an archetype deck. So I generally, if red green is open, look to be in like that more Legendsy Citadel space. Sometimes that won't come together. Sometimes you won't see Great Halls. Sometimes there won't be like legends that you want to splash for them. And, you know, if Red Green's open and you're in a seat that is like looking to be that, you might end up just like going like, okay, maybe I found a card that I could splash, but it's not really worth it. Or I'll splash it some other way, but I'll be based, I'll meaningfully be a Red Green deck. But just keep in mind that because so many, because the gold cards uh, that are white and one of these colors are all so good, there's a very high chance that you're gonna end up wanting white mana specifically in your red green deck, so you should draft accordingly. And then again, just to hammer it home, I think a lot of the reason that I never end up here is due to not acknowledging War Beast of Gargaroth. Uh, so keep an eye out for that if you end up in this space. Uh, it does make sense, like its stats are great, and it makes sense to me that it plays well, given that all of the other creatures that you want just have four power, puts you into the like Ensphery space and stuff like that. So that's my overview, synopsis, hypothesis on the red-green archetype that, again, admittedly, I have never personally drafted. Uh, you know, I, I think that just sitting down with like the stats and looking at some trophy decks and thinking about what's going on with it, you know, certainly helped me think about what I would do if I were to draft it. So hopefully there's, you know, still something here, uh, but it's not going to be quite as precise as when I've like really drafted a deck a bunch and tuned it and stuff. So I don't know. There you have it. Uh, going to turn it over to chat for additional questions and commentary and what have you. While I'm uh, letting people hit me with some questions and comments there, I want to thank my newest patrons. 
Thank you so much to Chris and Guillaume, Guy one, not really sure, but appreciate it. Thank you so much for the support. If anyone else is uh, interested in contributing to the podcast, please um, check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes to um, investigate the offerings and consider pitching in. And again, if that's not where you're at, but you would like to help promote the show, sharing it with your friends or leaving reviews on whatever platform you listen to this on also really helps out. Commentary that Doors gets way better the more land cyclers you have, that is big true. Um, the land cyclers replacing land makes it a lot easier to have hits for the Doors to put big creatures into play, and those are like replacing cards that would otherwise be misses in your deck, so it's like a lot more likely that you get something and the thing that you get is huge. So uh, definitely if you are someone who prioritizes Doors, be sure to really highly prioritize land cyclers in those decks. How easy is it to splash the white gold cards? Frodo seems like you'd want to be able to reliably cast it on two. That is true, and I still think it's like not that hard. I think that when green is open, you end up seeing Woe's Pathfinders middle of the pack, many partings late in the pack, and rockets generally go pretty late. And then you can also use Great Hall of the Citadel. Between all that, I think it's not terribly difficult to have uh, enough sources um, on a splash to uh, make your Frodo's happen. And Frodo's like good enough to be worth like playing some rockets, uh, especially since like the rockets play well with your uh, improvised clubs anyway. And then the many partings also play well with the clubs. So you get like a nice little, you know, package there. And then, you know, worst case scenario, you're on envelopes and then you may, maybe can't play the Frodo on two, but like it gives you like the envelope plus the Frodo puts you at the point where you're on at least stage two tempt and um, you can probably double spell with Frodo. And so you have like reasonable things going that way, too. So great. That, that's actually something I looked into. The question is, uh, do Ent and Elephant have better stats among top players? Um, with the expectation that top players would be more likely to uh, play them correctly. The answer is that the stats were not much better. One of them, I don't remember which one, stopped being a negative improvement on drawn and went to like relatively neutral. So slight improvement, but like not very appreciable, which is part of why, like uh, I did look into it. The evidence didn't strongly support my theory it didn't really contradict my theory and that it did get a little bit better, but um, yeah, uh, no, 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 in a way that makes uh, my guess about it slightly less likely to be correct, but not so much so that I don't still think it's likely more true than not, but again, very low confidence. Yeah, so I, I mean, so I think Mirror Mirror Guardian is generally a pretty important um, the, the question here is, well, the question to the extent that it's a question is that uh, Mirror Mirror Guardian seems good, and does this make you want Warbeast higher? Yeah, I, I talked about that as one of the bigger synergies with Warbeast. I think that, you know, Mirror Mirror Guardian is, like, a great way into the, like, Four Power Matters green stuff with, like, Ensphiri and stuff, and definitely plays super well with Warbeast as far as like it making you want Warbeast higher. Again, like if you're in this archetype, 
that's just kind of how your creatures are going to work. You're going to be prioritizing all the four mana creatures and War Beast is just like going to be good. Um, it's obviously nice to like start that with a three drop rather than not starting it until a four drop. So Mirror Mirror Guardian is like special in that way. But weirdly, I think the most like interchangeable with Mirror Mirror Guardian card is Woe's Pathfinder because Woe's Pathfinder lets you play the four power th- four drops on three. And so like either Pathfinder or Mirror Mirror allows you to like play a four power creature on three, which is like really what the deck is trying to do. So I, I think that's really something to keep in mind is like, I think your deck is going to be a lot better if you have sufficient quantities of either Woe's Pathfinder or Mirror Mirror Guardian and having one means that you need the other one less. But those are the ways that you're going to like not be too far behind by the point where you start like playing your creatures, your big creatures. The uh, I guess the other way to do it is to just like have either just like great two and three drops or uh, to just have a good number of smite the deathless so you don't fall too far behind. Have I had any decks that make good use of Galadrim bow and am I more interested in it in red green? No, I have never played it, I think. And uh, if I have, it was like once early and it didn't really do anything. And it's the right kind of trick for a big creature deck. Like it contributes more words than stats, which is what you want on a trick for large creatures. Um, And it does it in a way that like helps race flyers, which would be a primary vulnerability for the deck. I still think it's like too clunky for me to want to bother with in a deck that's going to be like tapping out on the turns where you'd want to cast it and it's very expensive. I think in best of three, it might be a reasonable sideboard consideration, but it's like it's it doesn't have good stats in red green. It's not like a good card. Uh, it's, it's, I, I, it's not something that I would be drawn to personally. The note here is looking at Ent and Oliphant. They both have good game played win rates. So I was looking at comparative like improvement when drawn game in hand type win rates. But uh, this is suggesting that red and green decks uh, that play them perform better than red and green decks that don't play them. So looking at game played rather than like game in hand or not, which helps uh, eliminate the consideration for like does this correspond to being able to cast your splash card and is this really just making a statement about how long the game went and stuff like that so um that's an interesting note both about the cards and about methodology if you're looking at you know a card that maybe doesn't necessarily like fit in a particular sort of version of a deck or just in general you can look at like its game played win rate and see if it compares favorably to the overall game uh, played win rate for the archetype without it. Not something I've done a lot of, but definitely something I'm going to try to remember to keep in my toolbox. And I'm glad to see a way of looking at the stats that suggests that Ent and Oliphant do well in red-green, because it does make sense to me that they'd be good. So appreciate that idea. And uh, on that pretty interesting note, I'm going to uh, wrap it up. So thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, I fully have no idea what the podcast next week is going to be about. 
I'm not sure where we're going to be in terms of how much information we have about Wilds of Eldraine or how interesting the Arena Cube is going to be or uh, whether I'm going to do a final look at Lord of the Rings and then whether that would be an archetype or maybe some kind of overview, review, hindsight type thing. I might end up putting a poll in the uh, uh, for patrons about which of several different uh, kinds of topics that aren't necessarily archetypes next week will be about, or it might be clear to me that I should talk about something in particular, but I, I just don't know yet. And then the following week will probably be about Wilds of Eldraine, regardless of what uh, next week ends up being about. So that's what I know of what to expect here. Thanks everyone for listening and I'll be back with a mystery topic of some sort next week. So um, bye for now and have a good week and I'll see you then. Prepare for light speed.